Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And you will have no trouble recognizing our guest tonight, Dr. John Lundwell. How are you this evening? I'm doing great. Thanks, guys. Great to be back on your show. It's been a bit. It's been a bit, and we are absolutely thrilled that you are back. Um, we have done parts one through four with Dr. Lundwall. Wall. Okay, I have to address this right now. Dr. Lundwall's brother <laughs> contacted me and told me that I am slightly mispronouncing their last name, which is Wall. Now, I know that. I'm from Washington State. I tend to say things that have the all sound with an uh. So I'm sorry, Dan Lund. Wall, we love your brother, and I'm going to try to do the best I can. <laughs> and we'd like to meet you too someday. Anyway, uh, John has been AOL for a while. I think he must have been, what, a safari, hunting dragons, all the amazing things that he does. Um, but he is back here tonight for part five. And I should point out that he has been on a couple other shows in the meantime. He has been on Mormonism Live with uh, Bill Real and RFM. That was an amazing episode. And he's also been on an episode with the Backyard Professor. So he is making the rounds. And not only has he been on some programs, but there have been some other programs addressing his research and his appearances and his scholarship. I think Landon's kind of been tracking some of those. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the people that have been talking about Dr. Lundwall? Yeah, ma mainly it's been on Mormonism and the Murph, and and uh, he, he's got a good show, and and he he's brought on uh, uh, some, you know, yep. maybe heavy hitters, Brant Gardner and uh, and Neil Rapley. I don't know much about Neil, but uh, Brant Gardner definitely is a is a big name in Mormon uh, uh, apologetics, uh, and so uh, they both went on Mormonism and the Murph and and addressed John Lundwall's comments. It's interesting; both of these guys are tied in with Scripture Central. Um, which is the, the people who uninvited us to the uh, dinner they were having yes. because we yes. had, had uh, broadcast John Lundwall and, and his uh, thing. So uh, he, he's gaining some attention and people are, are sitting up and, and the fact that they had to bring these guys in means he's, he's making an impact. People are, are saying, oh, uh, people are listening to what John has yeah. to say. So uh, tonight we're not we're not addressing that. We're not responding to those issues. We had originally planned to have five episodes. This is mm -hmm. the fifth episode. Uh, John's going to finish out this, and then we we will address that, or John said that he'd address that uh, at a future time. Of course, John has to earn a living uh, like the rest <laughs> of us, and so we fit these things in when it, when it works with his, uh, with his schedule. So, uh, John, you're doing great work. That's right. You're the man. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. Um, yeah, I, uh, it's uh, tonight. I'm uh, going to talk a little bit about what these guys have said, but I, I we are going to do an episode where I'm just going to go and you know respond to some of their major points. Um, but uh, I, you know, in watching Brant's and Neil, neither of them seem to actually address the central tenet of my argument. So I'm going to make it very clear what I'm saying tonight uh, so that everyone on either side uh, can make their own assessment. And That's what we like to hear. A while you said uh, <laughs> yeah. tonight could be a little bit longer episode to get it all in. Yeah, that's just fine. That's true. <laughs> um, shall we... Uh, Shall yep, we begin? Let's, let's do it. Let's dive down the rabbit hole. Here we go. 
Yep, we can see your screen. So we can see your beautiful visuals. You always have the greatest slides. I just love it. it makes it all so right. Interesting. Uh, sorry about that. You, you've got this tree lit up on your screen. All right. Look, I'm I'm just going to begin. We're we're recording this a week a week before Christmas, and I just wanted to uh, say to your viewers and to you guys, Happy Holidays, uh, Merry Christmas or however you celebrate it merry yuletide happy winter solstice wednesday i'll be driving out at 4 a.m to a fremont site to do some uh photography and videotaping of a winter solstice sunrise assuming the weather uh is good but here's a picture i took at bryce canyon uh national monument i i won't give you the full story but it is one of my favorite pictures and i send this out as a christmas card um so i just wanted to say happy holidays guys um and thanks for having me back let's do this let's do it and happy holidays to you too john that's just wonderful all right um here are the uh five theses i had when reading the book of mormon with orality and literacy in mind uh we've already gone through over these i'm just going to review them the greatest anachronism in the book of mormon is the text itself a tight translation is impossible a loose translation is an act of violence the text of the book of mormon cannot be derived from the description of the gold plates the book of mormon characters are fabricated and can be falsified tonight we're doing number five the standard of proof for the book of mormon as set by the priesthood brethren resides only in a tight translation and in its literal historicity. Okay, look, I, I'm going to talk probably for the first half of this presentation on exactly what a tight and loose translation is, because I have actually been getting a lot of questions. There appears to be some misunderstanding, and as I watch uh, the apologists speak, I, I they're not even addressing uh, or seem to at least misunderstand what I mean by tight and loose translation. My point number five is, according to the standard of the Book of Mormon that the church itself has set, I didn't set the standard, you didn't set the standard, the critics didn't set the standard, the church set the standard, and their standard resides in the Book of Mormon's literal historicity and a tight translation. So I am going to spend some time talking about tight and loose translation and what that means. Even though I've gone over it, uh, there there is, seems to be confusion again between literacy, second orality, and what a tight and loose translation looks like between those epistemological paradigms. So um, that's where we're going to start. And to do that, we're going to do a little bit of reading tonight. Now, I know that, Rebecca, you said you don't like reading the screen. No, I can read. I can see this. Some things I can't. This I can't. All right. Well, then uh, you and Landon are going to have to take turns because we're going to okay. do a little bit of reading tonight. I, 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 I try not to do a lot of text on my slides because it, it slows things down. But um, alas, here is uh, something I wrote in... Uh, a book, Mythos and Cosmos, and I'm talking about translating technical ideas from ancient oral cultures, secondary oral cultures. They have writing, but their epistemological worldview is in what we've talked about in this cosmological, mythological, ritual, sacred space paradigm. Um, so 
don't know. Can one of you read what's on the screen? I can start. And then do you want to read the next one, Landon? I'll start the first paragraph. Um, translating technicalities. What separates modern man from ancient man is not intellectual capacity. One of the great divides between us and them is literacy. One must constantly be reminded that the ancient civilizations were oral civilizations. Despite the presence of numerous hieroglyphic and cuneiform texts, most people could not read or write. Literacy was reserved for an initiated class of priests representing a minute percentage of the population. As Landed. already noted of the Egyptians, how does an oral society pass down its knowledge of higher forms of learning? How do oral peoples create, maintain, and pass down a solar, lunar, and stellar calendar? How do such people embed geometric and astronomical designs of high complexity within their architecture without the use of massive blueprints, manuals, and books? How do they pass down knowledge of the basis of these things? The science of number, angles, ratios, measures, harmonics, and weights without writing. This is no easy task, and these questions have been left unanswered and even unexplored by most historians of science. All right, I will end the quote. Contrarily, Giorgio de Santillana, that is a professor of a history of science at MIT, gives us something to consider. Quote, science at all times involves a technical language which can hardly be understood if it is even recognized. Nobody can interpret farther than he understands, nor can anyone translate technical terms from an utterly foreign language if he is not first acquainted with the corresponding technical terms in his own. This should strike one as rather elementary. The vast amount of ancient Near Eastern and related mythological texts are at best obscure and ambiguous, often strangely incongruous. The most refined philological methods in the hands of expert philologists will yield only childish stuff out of them if childish stuff is expected. Technical indications which would make clear sense to scientists go unnoticed or mistranslated, end quote. All right, look, we're breaching an area of ancient knowledge and a gathering of ancient knowledge that is very poorly understood. The question is, what, what constitutes higher forms of learning in the ancient world? Well, we're not going to go too deep into that, but we can say that, uh, have you been to Egypt, either of you? Have you stepped in front of the Great Pyramid? I've been there, yes. Yeah, the, the Great Pyramid is unbelievable. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, it's uh, oriented precisely the, to the cardinal directions. Most people agree that it's astronomically aligned. It has uh, geometric and harmonic ratios embedded into its architecture, into its, you know, into its relationship. How does one do this without blueprints? There are no books, no blueprints, uh, no technical data has ever been found on it. What we get actually is a series of mythological tropes. We we find, you know, Seishet, the goddess of astronomy and number. Uh, we, we see the stretching of the cord ceremony. We see dances. We see rituals. We see mythological deities. It's, it's from this mythological tableau that we get something like the Great Pyramid appearing out of the sand. And what that tells us is there are some 
really they're doing things of which we have little understanding as to what these images actually mean. Well, my point with all this is not only science, but religion too has technical terms that are often misunderstood and mistranslated. We have to understand in the ancient world, in the Bronze Age, there is no separation between science and religion. They're the same thing. So um, uh, religious terms, very often a polytheistic system in an oral world, your, your deities are the technical terms of your religion. It's, it's easier to, to understand that those deities are often verbs as opposed to nouns. They represent things that are happening in nature that cause things to happen. And that is being represented in a personification of a, of a god or a goddess. Okay? God of fire, god of wind, god of... Uh, yes, but it's, it, of... It, it's not just god of wind, god of fire, god... It's actual events that occur in the observable cosmos that they are watching. We're going to give some examples. In fact, I'm going to start with the Pyramid of Unis. Uh, this is going to uh, become really important here in about 30 minutes. Okay. Um, I'm talking about an ancient way of seeing things, the secondary oral world, where they have writing, but the writing serves their oral tradition. And that oral tradition is not just religious bugaboo. It actually is filled with technicalities, technical terms that represent high concepts, both scientific and religious, everything they need in order to survive, everything they need in order to build that great pyramid and all the temples and structures and infrastructure required to build that great pyramid. So uh, I thought I would share an example of what, what this world looks like by looking at the pyramid text. So here's the pyramid of Venus. The lower left uh, picture is a picture I took, and that's what the pyramid of Venus is actually. It's just a pile of rubble. If you were to walk by it, you wouldn't even know. I mean, it doesn't even look much like a pyramid. Well, there's an entry shaft that goes underground and I have a diagram. You, you, there's a hole in the ground up, up here. And you go down some steps and you enter this long passageway, which I have picture here in the right. So you can see the steps in the back. You, you walk down. There's a granite porculus. The stones would slide down to block the, the passage. And then you, right before you enter the first chamber, you encounter this. For the first time, we find texts inscribed in the pyramids, and these are the first texts you encounter. This is the west wall of the entrance passageway. Notice the stars on the ceiling, and that gives you a context as to where you are at. You are entering the other world, okay? The duat, the, the, the netherworld. Um, so... But there's all kinds of disagreements as to <laughs> some Egyptologists believe that these texts right here are the, the first texts you were to read. Other Egyptologists think they're the last texts you are to read. In other words, this entrance passageway 
for some Egyptologists, is actually the exit passageway. The entrance into the pyramid is actually the tomb, the sarcophagus, where you die. So the entrance would be here where the sarcophagus is, and the soul goes through all these rituals and exits out this shaft to the northern sky, making this hallway sort of an architectural birth canal. Um, so there's not there's no agreement, right? The, the, the scholars argue with each other as to whether this is the start of the pyramid text or the end of the pyramid text. Well, here's what I'm going to do. This is going to show you a snapshot of the religious cosmovision of a secondary oral world, which is what the Egyptians were, okay? And uh, we're going to read this, then we're going to read some Mayan writing because it's remarkably the same. And then we're going to compare that to the Book of Mormon, okay? It's pretty simple, but once you start adding all this up, it becomes very clear how anachronistic the Book of Mormon actually is. So we're going to start here. I'm going to give you a translation of this wall right here, okay? And I'm going to give you a tight translation and a loose translation by two expert linguists, okay, who do not agree on anything with each other. So on the left, I have the translation of that wall of text by James P. Allen. He's an, he is the gold standard when it comes to Egyptology. He's translated the pyramid text. And um, he's basically who everyone reads and who people should read. Um, but, you know, he translates the text very tightly he's giving us a glyph to word translation and as a result uh, uh landon do you want to read the uh the left column there sure opening the door to the sky oh pull back baboon's penis open sky door you sealed door open a path for unus on the blast of heat where the gods scoop water Horus's glide path, twice will Unus glide on in this blast of heat where the gods scoop water, and they will make a path for Unus that Unus may pass on it. Unus is Horus. Recitation, back, gourd longhorn with the horizon's fingers on his horns. Fall down, crawl away. Unus is a screeching, howling baboon. Unus is anus on Unus's back and Unus's back ridge on Unus's head. Unus will make ululation and sit among the youngsters. Okay. It was uh, beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> the very first salvo of the earliest corpus of religious texts that we have in the world. And this is what it says. Okay. Uh, oh, pull back baboon's penis. We're going to talk a bit about genitalia tonight it's why i got into the subject matter. did you hear that everybody don't go anywhere, don't go anywhere. you've got four solid hours here i'm talking about genitalia get your popcorn okay look with you know none of us are egyptologists when you read that what is your impression do you understand it i no no uh uh, I was trying to make sense of it. Uh, uh, I, you know, usually when you hear penis, you might think of of something that's, uh, uh, you know, harvest or something related right. to fertility or something fertility, like that. Yeah. But uh, it it makes no sense. 
It seems very specific, though. It, it seems like it's just here's a picture of a door. Here's a picture of the sky. Here's a picture of this action. It seems like just kind of unrelated things put together. Well, actually, both those are really good observations. Remember, uh, to an oral society, primary or secondary oral, their primary reference of meaning is what they see in nature. You know, they don't have a word for fertility. Mm -hmm. They're 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 idea of fertility is expressed as a penis and as a vulva and you find the penises and the vulvas everywhere in the writing and in the iconography of this culture and and all the other cultures in the bronze age and i mean if you look at rock art throughout uh utah they're everywhere right and they are fertility uh motifs um that is the iconography of their technical terms for creation, for fertility. Okay. I, I, I can back that up because we, we, uh, the first time we met you, John, and you said you were a rock art, uh, expert. The first thing we said is, is, are those really penises on the, on the rock <laughs> art? Because we, we, we kept saying, is that what we think it is? And you said, yes, it is. Yes. And, it is. uh, when I went to Egypt, all over on those walls were d descriptions with a uh, with a figure with a erect penis and stuff. So it was both places I saw Utah rock art, Egypt uh, hieroglyphics. You, you see that same motif. It's very common. Okay. Also, your uh, observation, uh, Rebecca, was very good. This is a, a very uh, specific series of statements. And sure enough, I mean, what they mean is really, I mean, uh, first time I read it, I had no idea what it was talking about, right? It, it comes across as mostly gibberish because it is, it is comes from a completely different epistemological model of how they're collecting and transmitting information, how they how they look at the world, how how their religion is formed, how their ontology is formed. So. All right, that is James Allen's uh, translation of that passage. Now I'm go uh, we're going to read a different translator, Susan Morrow. Susan Morrow is not an Egyptologist; she's a linguist, a classicist, and actually a very bright scholar who studied under Alexander Pionkov, who was an A-tier Russian Egyptologist, and uh, he. Uh, and James Allen disagreed on many of the most basic things when it came to translating ancient Egyptian. So Susan Morrow's translation, she's fully conversant in translating Egyptian hieroglyphs, but you'll see that it's quite different than James Allen. So uh, let's see, Rebecca, do you want to read the right column? Yes, absolutely. And so this is taken from that hallway, the very same thing. Is same, that right? Same okay. glyphs. Okay. Just a different translator. Just a different translator. Here we go. All right. Um, the sword of Orion opens the doors of the sky. Before the doors close again, the gate to the path over the fire, beneath the holy ones as they grow dark, as a falcon flies, as a falcon flies. May Eunice rise in this fire beneath the holy ones as they grow dark. They make a path for Eunice. Eunice takes the path. Eunice becomes the falcon star, Sirius. Say the words, would that the bull break the fingers of the horizon of earth with its horns, come out, rise. Say the words, 
Unus becomes the baboon of the desert hills of old, the rising light in Unus, the wise face is Unus, the shining one is Unus, the face, the head is Unus, the eye is Unus. Rejoice that he remain among you on the path as a child. All um, right. Uh, okay. Does that help any? <laughs> Well, it's very figurative. <laughs> it, you know, it's figurative. I think I can, you know, having studied a lot of classic poetry, I think I can probably make more of this than I can of the other. But if you were to show me these side by side without knowing they were from the same hallway, I don't know that I would have thought they had anything to do with each other. That's right. So we have two different translations and Morrow's is completely different than Allen's. Uh, shockingly so. Well, it turns out that's not uncommon, right? And so there the are reasons why it is extraordinarily difficult to translate texts from a secondary oral society because the primer of the text is not a text that comes from literacy. Rather, it's something you, again, your, your primary referent of meaning is what you are observing in nature. And this is what these texts are about the rituals that reflects something that the priests are articulating in nature and in fact we have yeah sorry i got to move my picture <laughs> we are looking at a portion of the sky now uh alan translates uh the door in the sky as a baboon's penis Morrow just goes straight to, that's the sword of Orion. We're looking at the constellation Orion, and there are three stars which contain the uh, Orion Nebula, which you can see with the naked eye. And here is the door of the sky. Well, she translates it thus because there is a lot of other texts in iconography that gives an astronomical context. And so uh, Alan is is keeping a very tight translation of what the glyph actually says, according to him. It's a baboon's penis. But Morrow says, well, we know what that is. The, the door in the sky is a space in the, in the sky they are observing. That's the constellation Orion. The baboon's penis, therefore, is the sword of Orion that opens the door in the sky. Well, that's an interpretation, okay? Um, so we're, we're going to talk about this, but there's a reason why this is central to, it is central to Egyptian cosmology. Osiris is a personification of a group of stars, Orion and Orion. Here's a group of stars. This green line is the ecliptic. That's the path that all the planets follow in the sky. Uh, you'll see Jupiter and Saturn and Venus and Mercury along this, the sun and moon along this line, right? The purple line is the Milky Way. Where the ecliptic and the Milky Way intersect is where Orion, Taurus, and Gemini are, and that never changes. And it turns out these stars in practically every ancient cosmology are central. Uh for several reasons. First off, here's the star Sirius. Remember, Unus comes out and turns into Sirius. Um, when the, 
the star Sirius rose right before the sun, the heliacal rising, rising that announced the inundation of the Nile. That's when the river flooded and that began their agricultural cycle because after the river flooded, it inundated the fields with new fertile soil and that fertile soil enabled them to replant every year a new crop which sustained the civilization. So the rising of Sirius heliacally announced the new creation, right? Well, also, we, we, we get this uh, imagery of the falcon coming in. And, uh, you know, as, as the Nile began to flood, bramble would come down the river. And you'd get these little islands of bramble and weeds that birds would actually land on, including falcons. So when the falcon arrived and landed on the bramble, that announced that that occurred at the same time that Sirius rose in the sky before the sun. And that announced the inundation of the river, which announced the creation of a new cycle, which brought forth new life. Okay. We get that entire tableau in this first paragraph. Paragraph. The Sword of Orion opens the door. Um, you know, uh, good old Alan talks about a path that the where they're scooping water, which probably is the ecliptic that the planets follow. Right? That's the the in Egyptian iconography that the planets are boats that that sail down a celestial river. All right, so I'm not going to get into, into this other than to say these pyramid texts are pointing to a specific series of events that are announced with a specific series of rising and setting stars as well as the rising and setting sun. And they have analogized all this into their rituals. And this is the backbone of their religious cosmovision. The techno their religious technical terms, therefore, are such things as baboon's penis, baboon's anus, uh, the path of scooping water. They're actually looking at things in the sky, analogically referencing them. The baboon, for example, is the animal that chatters at sunrise. Right before the sun rises, the baboons actually wake up and they begin speaking. And, and the Egyptians saw that as their words bringing forth the birth of the sun. And so in Egyptian cosmology, you have seven baboons uttering the seven words of creation that bring forth the sun, bring forth creation. They're just simply looking at what baboons do. And they've analogically used that to, to talk about the baboon's penis is that which brings forth fertility, the creation. Right? Okay. Well, how are you going to know that just by reading the text? You're not. Yeah, yeah. You have to have an understanding of the symbology, the mindset in order to do any kind of translating of that. That is correct. And that goes deep. And furthermore, there's a horizon of understanding beyond which uh, nobody can tread. A lot of it's irretrievable. You, you have to have been those priests looking at knowing all. so many of these phrases are actually puns. 
They're pun homophones, punning other words, other technical terms, other ritual scenarios, uh, other astronomical scenarios. <laughs> How are you going to know all the puns, let alone the interpretation of the text? You're not, right? So, I mean, Egyptologists have been at this for decades, and they have slowly parsed together some of it. And as but as a result, they they're con you know nobody can agree on some of the most basic things. Let's uh, read actually um, James Allen's description of his translation. Landon, will you read that? Yeah, the translations are meant to reflect as closely as possible the language and style of the text themselves. Egyptian is rich in allegory and metaphor, but relatively poor in vocabulary. I've tried to reflect the latter feature by using as much as possible a single English uh, call cue uh, for its Egyptian counterpart. I have also avoided the use of words that may connote concepts not present in Egyptian. Thus, for example, uh, PT is translated throughout as sky rather than heaven. In a few cases, our knowledge of the Egyptian language has not yet made it possible to know the meaning of a verb or noun. Such words are represented in the translations by a transliteration of the Egyptian term. The pyramid texts reflect not only an Egyptian vision of the afterlife, but also the entire background of old kingdom, religious, and social structures. And they incorporate an ancient worldview much different from that of more familiar cultures. Two centuries of scholarship have allowed us to understand much of this background and worldview but many of its aspects still remain obscure. Even in translation, therefore, the meaning of the text and allusions within, within them are not always clear. Okay. So Alan is basically saying, look, I'm giving you a very direct translation. Um, many of the words, there's no correspondence to an English word. I'm using... Um, uh just very literal you know baboon's penis i'm looking at the text and i mean in, in one sense literally it's a baboon's penis so that's how i'm translating it very little interpretation i'm just giving you a direct uh translation um however he admits wow a lot of this deals with a cosmovision that uh, is not yet understood and much of it, therefore, remains unclear, okay? Here is Susan Morrow's note of the same translation in her approach. Rebecca, will you read that? You're I muted. can't hear you. I'm pulling an RFM. I'm muting myself. All right, here we go. Translating the translations. Some, element, some elements in the translation of hieroglyphs are simply not knowable. They are a matter of opinion. For example, there is nothing to suggest the use of the imperative or the future in the first verse. The Russian Egyptologist Alexandre Pionkov, is that how you say his yes, name? Yes. Uh, working the late 1860s differs from James Allen on a vocabulary, parts of speech and his interpretation of the sense and arrangement of the text. Allen sees the beginning as what Pionkov understands is the end. Uh, the west wall above the sarcophagus, which they believe is covered with magic spells to protect the mummy from snake bites. 
but there are numerous misrepresentations of things throughout their interpretations that are perfectly knowable. Distortions of well-known words in the original hieroglyphs and pervasive grammatical inaccuracies distort the sense of, of the passage and turn the translation into something that is neither Egyptian nor English. The assumption that this is a primitive text about African animals as monsters and gods continues in the same spirit and is now firmly in the realm of misrepresentation. One could ignore this if there was not so much at stake hmm. well if if you understand what she's saying she is firing a shot across james allen's bow yeah and saying that his translation is unhelpful and even enters the realm of misrepresentation now he's the a-tier egyptologist she's a linguist and classical scholar uh but um you know she points out look there's not even verb tense in these hieroglyphs. So if you're uh, if you're um, uh, translating in a future tense, that's an opinion. That's an interpretive move. Uh, Alan believes the first texts are the beginning. Pionkov thought they were the end. Um, and on and on it goes. Well, you can imagine after she wrote this, what James Allen's response to her was. Uh he called her a blithering amateur, <laughs> which she fired back. And so there was a really interesting sort of academic hubbub over Morrow's translation of the pyramid text because she took on uh, Alan and, and that group of scholars. Uh, now, look, I myself, I don't read Egyptian. I'm not an ancient linguist. I don't have the expertise. That's... Uh, I, I am bringing all of this up for a, a specific reason. We are looking at the religion of the Bronze Age. We are looking at how religion was expressed in the Bronze Age. We are looking at religion in a secondary oral world, and it's ubiquitous. No matter where you go, indigenous tribes in the Americas, pre all pre-Columbian cultures in the Americas, indigenous tribes in Africa, indigenous, the Aborigines of Australia, indigenous peoples of China, of Japan, all through, if they are primary oral or secondary oral, they express their technical religious terms in the things you see. And those terms are impossible to translate Unless you are initiated into the system, unless you see what they are seeing, unless you see what they are doing. And in fact, these texts are not texts, they're rituals, right? Say the words, right? Recitation. These are the words the priest spoke during the ritual that they were performing as they buried the dead king. They were dancing this text they were singing this text they were chanting this text and this text had to do with specific rituals that they had done when the star sirius rose with the sun when the river uh, flooded and uh, they had done these rituals as they planted their crops as they as the baboons chattered at sunrise right they have all this in mind that they're doing how are we to know that just by reading the text. 
Well, you're not going to know that just by reading the text. This is, uh, as Alan said, this has taken two centuries and still nobody can agree on the most basic things in Egyptian religion because, as Morrow says, much of it is unknowable. It's irretrievable. It's a matter of opinion. And boy, does my opinion differ from Alan's and, and the experts, and here's why. So, um, all right. Now, I, I don't read uh, ancient Egyptian, but I, I do work with a group of archaeologists, rock art specialists, surveyors, and we look at ancient rock art in Utah, the Utah Cultural Astronomy Project. This is the Fremont culture, 300 to 1300 CE. Now, look, the Fremont are primary oral. They had zero writing. They left hundreds of thousands of images on rock. Rock art is a visual representation of an oral tradition. Well, what is that? It's not simple. An oral tradition is filled with the things you see. These images are the things they uh, observe in nature and are being personified and expressed in technical images. It's not graffiti. It's not, you know, it's not, not doodles. We are looking at ritual. We are looking at cosmology. We are looking at agriculture. We're looking at trade. We're looking at politics. Everything the culture needed to survive is expressed in these divine images. The problem, of course, is without writing, most of the meanings are irretrievable. And even if we had writing, we still couldn't interpret it. We just looked at the pyramid text. There's no agreement. It is uh, it is a text rooted in an ancient metaphysic that is is this right it's it's uh it's a visual representation of the things they're observing in nature and uh so when we go to these sites you know a lot of people have all kinds of interpretations and those are nice and neat but if we offer any interpretation we have to do a hell of a lot of work uh we go we measure we look at orientations, we look at the landscape, what they're seeing, we look at the archaeology reports, what was excavated, we look at the ethnography, are, are there any corresponding matching images in the ethnography of surrounding cultures? Um, just to look at one panel requires an enormous amount of work, and guess what? When we're done, we might not have learned anything. <laughs> We we might still just be at ground zero, which happens often. So um, I, I'm just saying, when you do this for several years, you get a sensibility of the difficulties of dealing with an oral or secondary oral culture. Much of it's irretrievable because it exists in a completely different framework of thought. All right, we're going to... Finally, to end this part, we're going to enter the world of Mesoamerica, because this is very important for our topic of the Book of Mormon. In Mesoamerica, we have a secondary oral society. The Maya had writing 200 BCE forward, writing as early as 5, 650 BCE. There's, there's some representations as early as 900 BCE. But what we can say is writing comes very late in Mesoamerica. And what we get in the religious texts is exactly what we just read in the Egyptian texts. It is a series of untranslatable uh, phrases 
that refer to things they are looking at in the ground, in the sky, in the agricultural cycle. And it has, again, taken decades for scholars to parse some of it out. Very little agreement. It's the exact same scenario. There is a central text called the Popol Vuh that, uh, look, the the text was written by a Spanish friar, 1700s, from a mid-1500s prior text that had, the Spanish friar had a transliteration of the Quiche Mai language in one column and a Spanish translation in the other column. Uh, the the A-tier translator of the Quiche Maya is Dennis Tedlock. That's the translation I'm using. And Dennis Tedlock notes of this book called the Popol Vuh, this Mayan book. Uh, well, he writes this about it. If the ancient Popol Vuh was like the surviving hieroglyphic books, I have this image to the right. This is from the Dresden Codex. There's only a few codexes of the Maya that survive, and they all look like this. They're images surrounded by Mayan hieroglyphs. It's just like Egyptian. Egyptian, you know, the uh, facsimiles in the Book of Abraham, you had your images, and you had your text, the text related to the image. And the image in the text were ritual scenarios, cosmological scenarios. Very, oh, No Abraham was going on there. That This was the, uh, the, the ritual scenarios of the cult, right? We get the exact same thing in Mayan. Tedlock writes of the Popol Vuh. The Polvu was like the survive. If it was like the surviving hieroglyphic books, it contained systematic accounts of cycles in astronomical and earthly events that served as a complex navigation system for those who wished to see and move beyond the present. If the authors of the alphabetic Polvu had transposed the ancient Polvu directly on a glyph by glyph basis, they might have produced a text that would have made little sense to anyone but a fully trained diviner and performer. What they did instead was to quote what readers of the ancient book would say when they gave long performances, telling the full story that lay behind the charts, pictures, and plot outlines of the ancient book, end quote. Again, what did Tedlock just say? He just said what Alan and Morrow said. If we get a direct translation from a, a religious text in this thought world, it's not going to make any sense to us. We're going to be reading about baboons, penises and anuses and, and a path of scooping water and Una say this and Una say that, right? It, it doesn't make any sense. It's the exact same thought world in Mesoamerica in every pre-Columbian culture. That's the thought world. In fact, uh, let's just read the first couple paragraphs of this ancient Mayan text. Uh, Rebecca, do you want to read that? Yeah, this is so fascinating. This is Mayan writing, the Popol Vuh. We shall write about this now amid the preaching of God in Christendom now. We shall bring it out because there is no longer a place to see it, a council book, a place to see the light that came from beside the sea, the account of our place in the shadows, a place to see the dawn of life, as it is called. There is the original book and the ancient writing, but the one who reads and assesses it has a hidden identity. It takes a long performance and account to complete the lightning of all the sky earth. The, the lighting of all the sky earth. 
Mm-hmm. All right. This is the opening passage of the Mayan creation text. And the Kiche Maya writer says, uh, we're in the middle of Christendom now. They've been colonized. And so we no longer have this place that we perform our Popol vu. What is the Popol vu? It's translated as council book, but literally it's the mat the priest sat on and counseled with each other. And it was called an ilbal, translated as a place to see. Uh, in Kiche Maya, that word is used for binocular, telescope, microscope, uh, eyeglasses. It's any tool that allows you to see beyond your own senses. The Popol Vuh is a place to see. And what were they looking at? Well, here we get technical religious terms. The light that came from beside the sea. This is a place. Where is it? We don't know. Right? This had, this is embedded into their uh, cultural uh, cosmovision. The account of our place in the shadows, a place to see the dawn of life, the beginning of all things. Right? Uh, it takes a long performance and account to complete the lighting of all the sky earth. The Mayan word for world is literally translated is sky earth. The world is everything in the sky and everything on the ground combined. That is the world. And it and the Popol Vuh was a performance, a song, dance and ritual. It wasn't a text. It was a song, dance, and ritual that may have had a sort of pictorial, like this image on your right, a pictorial uh, accompanying text that would that the priests would look at as they performed the Popol Vuh, okay? All during the Book of Mormon time period, religion was danced and sung in a place to see as they were looking at the sky earth, Okay. That's Mayan religion. Um, now, just, just to be complete, Landon, here's in a few paragraphs later, we read this in the Popol Vuh. We and read course, that. Yep. And of course, there is the sky, and there is also the heart of the sky. This is the name of the God as it is spoken. And then came his word. He came here to the sovereign plumed serpent, here in the blackness in the early dawn. He spoke with the sovereign plumed serpent, and they talked, and they thought. Then they worried. Then they agreed with each other. They joined their words, their thoughts. Then it was clear. Then they reached accord in the light. And then humanity was clear. When they conceived the growth, the generation of trees, of bushes, and the growth of life, of humankind in the blackness, in the early dawn, all because of the heart of the sky named Hurricane. Hurricane. Uh, that's a Utah terminology. <laughs> <laughs> thunderbolt hurricane comes first. The second is newborn thunderbolt, and the third is sudden thunderbolt. So there were three of them as heart of the sky who came to the sovereign plumed serpent when the dawn of life was conceived. Okay. Look, I, I, I've uh, shown this block of text because it gives us a really good insight. When, when they say uh, heart of sky, which is the name of a deity. And later he's, div- he's, he's shown his three deities. He's, uh, uh, thunderbolt, hurricane, newborn thunderbolt and sudden thunderbolt. He's the three in one Trinity, right? Um, well, he, uh, he converses with sovereign plume serpent. Heart of the sky is in the sky. 
Sovereign Plume Serpent is there in the Primordial Sea. The Primordial Sea is pre-existent all of everything. It's the it, it was always existent. So Sovereign Plume Serpent is probably the animating power that allows for everything to come into being. So Heart of Sky and Sovereign Plume Serpent, they come together, right? They talked, they thought, they worried, they agreed, they joined words, they joined thoughts, and then they agreed. What is being described is what the Mayan priests did. They came together at the council mat, they sat down, they looked at the sky and prognosticate in their astrological models, and they talked and they thought and they worried is it going to be a good year? Is it going to be a bad year? Are we going to win the battle? Are we going to lose the battle? Right? They they are prognosticating using the world from the place to see, right? And so they're writing that they're doing what the first deities did, right? Everything they're doing is a repetition of, of what the first deities did. And then we have uh, the heart of the sky. And it turns out, Using iconography and other texts, we've determined, scholars have determined what the heart of the sky is. Any guesses? Uh, the North Star. It's Orion. Oh, right in the middle where those. Right. Okay. So same as Egypt. Egypt has Orion as the door in the sky where the soul comes in and out and begins its transcendent journey for immortality. Right. The Mayan Sea, Orion, same thing as the heart of the sky. Look, Orion sits here underneath the ecliptic. That red line is the celestial equator, which runs right through the middle of Orion. So or, above the celestial equator is the heavens. Below the celestial equator is the underworld, right? The mythological earth is not some childish imagination of some flat disc sitting on top of a turtle. The mythological earth is what you see in the sky. Above the celestial equator is the, it's complicated, but it's the realm of the divine. Below it is where the stars set below the horizon. That's where you enter your underworld. So this is where the heart, heart of the sky is. And that is the deity, heart of the sky. And he's divided into three deities. And it turns out it's these three stars in Orion. And every time a Mayan built a hut, they would make a hearth. And they would place three stones around the hearth. And those three stones represented these three stars, Rigel, Saif, and Alnatak. Um, they were the three creator deities of the heart of the sky. We find representations of these three stones representing the stars on altars, in temples and palaces, and in the sky, which which means it's, it's sort of a fractal relationship. You built that in the in the house. You built it in the hut. You built it at the altar. You built it at the palace. You built it. It founded the city, and it's all coming down from the divine realm in the in the sky. And why are they doing that? Well, because the rising and setting of Orion, as well as the rising and setting of the Pleiades, as well as the position of the Big Dipper in the sky frame their agricultural cycle that's what brought forth the dawn of life and that's how they lived and survived and they they had all kinds of ritual cycles that moved with the rising and setting stars and that's what we're reading in the popol vu 
And by the way, that's what we're reading in the pyramid texts. And that's what we're reading in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And that's what we're reading in the vast uh, mythological materials of the Bronze Age. We, we, this is the thought world of secondary orality. Okay? This is the thought world of, of all indigenous pre-Columbian cultures in the Americas, even though it's, you know, they have different conceptions. Some of them are hunter-gatherers. Some of them are agrarian. There are differences that come with those, but they are combining sky-earth in their traditions. So if I can ask a question, the idea that there's some kind of priestly class that sees things differently and writes in a literary way that does not transcend anywhere into the world, that's just ridiculous. Well, once you understand what I've just presented, when you sit down and read the Book of Mormon, you can, uh, from the very first verse, you can know it's entirely anachronistic. Where's this text coming from? Well, let's talk about that. Um, Landon, do you want to read that? Yeah. A religious text from a secondary oral world serves the oral tradition. That oral tradition is wed to the environment and its life cycles. These, in turn, are transposed into mythological, cosmological, and cultural motifs and scenarios. And read the next paragraph. All religious texts contain technical terms indicative of the cosmovision of the religion. To understand the terms requires to understand the terms requires cultural context, and often those contexts can be dated to specific time frames. Okay. I can sit down and read uh, uh, expert translations of Mayan. And what am I going to read? I'm going to be reading what we just read. I'm going to be reading polytheistic technical terms that sound very much like uh, what I read in, in Egypt. It's uh, because it's, it's coming from the same thought world, different references, different, different, you know, they're, they're looking at the agricultural cycle of the, the Egyptian Valley is different than the agricultural cycle of the Yucatan and Mesoamerica. However, they are, they're doing the same thing. Okay. And so I can look at what they're talking about. Heart of sky, newborn hurricane. These are their religious technical terms. And I know that they're being related to things in the sky earth that's attached to their agricultural, cosmological, and political systems, okay? Well, this brings up a huge problem for the Book of Mormon. Uh, Rebecca, will you read that? Certainly. All the technical terms in the Book of Mormon belong to post-Reformation Christianity. One must assume that either these ideas were present in the First Temple Judaism and, and the pre-Columbian Americas, or that Smith transposed them through the transla through translation, turning the original idea into a corresponding articulation of late Christianity. There is zero evidence for the first assumption. And indeed, overwhelming counter-evidence, the second assumption thus presents the problem of what exactly was written on the gold plates. Okay. So, we, we've looked at a couple ancient, uh, a couple texts. I mean, the, the Pobo Vu was written in the 16th century. Right, that all that heart of the sky and looking at Orion and and wedding that to uh, the the agricultural cycle. That 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 was the religious cosmovision all through the Book of Mormon timeline in Mesoamerica. 
It's the religious in different ways. It's the religious cosmovision of North America, the heartland model. Um, when you read the Book of Mormon, all of its religious technical terms, what are they? We're going to look at some. Do not belong to that thought world. They all belong to very late post-Reformation Christianity. And it's obvious. So then we were presented with two problems. One, were those ideas actually existent in pre-Columbian Americas and First Temple Judaism? Was it there with Nephi and Lehi, these technical terms in the Book of Mormon? And the answer is no, not they were not there. There, not only is there no evidence, there's plenty of evidence that they were not there. We we can look at the the religious iconography, and most of First Temple Judaism is gone. Uh, but what do we find? We find uh, Yahweh and Asherah. We find uh, uh, you know we have uh, the Song of Sabbath uh, Sabbath sacrifice in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which details a ritual cycle that the priests did every new year and what is it it's a dance through the cosmos right there's no mention of grace or redemption or of a savior or a messiah christ or uh redeeming your sins right these are the technical terms in the book of mormon we we don't even find those in the old testament no itself uh redemption and and baptism and all these other ideas that is correct so when you look at the technical religious terms in the book of mormon you find that they're completely anachronistic to the time and place that they're supposed to be in so you know were they there no then that presents us with the second problem what exactly were on the gold plates well let's look at it Tighter loose translation. Here, here on the left, I have an image of the gold plates. This is our source text. What text was written on the gold plates? If the text belonged to a secondary oral society, which is every society we know existed in Mesoamerica, in North America and South America, you have primary oral societies, no writing. Right, But their thought world is going to be very similar because the secondary oral society simply has writing that serves the oral tradition. So if the source text on the Book of Mormon belonged not only to all the indigenous cultures of pre-Columbian America, this is also First Temple Judaism, 600 BCE, Lehi and Nephi, then a literal translation of the glyphs would be what well we just read two examples you get something yeah that makes no sense right <laughs> we would be reading about tapir penises jaguar anuses uh macaque feathers and squawking and uh to us whatever it would be gibberish it would just be gibberish and not that it is gibberish, but it wouldn't make no sense to us because we're reading rituals and cosmology and agriculture that are put in these metaphors. The only way you know them is to be initiated into the system. That's, so that's if the source text of the Book of Mormon belongs to a secondary oral society, 
then a literal translation would be meaningless. You could not get the text of the Book of Mormon from that. Okay? All right. So then we go to the second assumption. What if the source text was from a secondary oral society, but Joseph Smith, through revelation and inspiration, changed it to the text that we have? What would that look like? Okay. Well, here I have on the right uh, a quote from Ether chapter 3, 13 through 16. Eth this is the brother of Jared meeting, seeing Jesus through the veil. What's the date? Well, this is the tower where they, the, the languages are divided, which traditionally is the exact same date as the pyramid text of Unis. Okay? okay. So there religious text we just read scooping water and, and and from the same area and from the same area yeah right all right uh who wants to read uh ether 13 because i don't think rebecca can read that <laughs> no right. not that <laughs> because thou knowest these things you are redeemed from the fall therefore you are brought back into my presence therefore i show myself unto you Behold, I am he who was prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people. Behold, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Father and the Son. In me shall all mankind have life, and that eternally. Even they who shall believe on my name, and they shall become my sons and my daughters. And never have I showed myself unto man whom I have created, for never was man believed in me, uh, never has man believed in me as thou hast. Seest thou that ye are created after mine own image? Yea, even all men were created in the beginning after mine own image. Behold, this body which ye now behold is the body of my spirit. And man have I created after the body of my spirit. And even as I appear unto thee to be in the spirit, will I appear unto my people in the flesh. Okay. All the yellow text, by the way, are the technical terms of this religious cosmovision. Redemption, the fall, redeem. I am Jesus Christ, the Father and the Son. Even as I appear unto thee in the spirit, will I appear unto my people in the flesh. That's a technical scenario. These are the technical terms. I can tell you they did not exist in the Bronze Age. Right? We, I know what to look for. This is a completely anachronistic text that has nothing to do with the days of the brother of Jared. So where is it coming from? Okay. Well, just one more. This is second Nephi. So this is 600 BCE. Lehi and Nephi. I'll read this. This is second Nephi 25, 23 through 26. For we labor diligently to write... Now, remember, the pyramid text is a ritual, a dance, a chant that they recite. The Popovu is a ritual, a dance, a chant that they recite, right? Well, here in 2 Nephi, the religion is a writing. We labor diligently to write, to persuade our children, and also our brethren, to believe in Christ, to be reconciled to God, for we know that it is by grace, your technical term, that we are saved after all we can do. In 600 BCE, the technical term would be a deity, right? And notwithstanding, we believe in Christ, we keep the law of Moses, which is a text, 
and look forward with steadfastness unto Christ until the law shall be fulfilled. For this end was the law given, wherefore the law hath been dead unto us, and we are made alive in Christ because of our faith. Yet we keep the law because of the commandments. And we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies that our children may know what source they may look for a remission of their sins. Technical terms, grace, uh, redemption, remission of sins, um, technical frameworks, writing, law of Moses, which is a written text. All right, if the source text is from a secondary oral world, how are you going to get the Book of Mormon text out of that? How are you going to do that? If you can do that from a indigenous American culture, you can do that with any religion. Uh, so, so what is translation? I This is a, a world-to-world translation, which is something I've heard Mormon scholars say that the previous, if it's a word-to-word translation, it would come across as gibberish. So they're saying it's not a word-to-word translation. It's a world-to-world translation. That's what, um, who's the historian we went to and listened to? Bushman. Which time? Bushman. Yeah, yeah, Bushman says this, a world-to-world translation. We're changing the secondary oral world into a post-Reformation Christian world. uh, And that is what I am calling a loose translation in my paradigm. If you're changing one world into another world, that's an act of violence because you have ripped from the, the first world all of the original context, all of the things that they were looking at, all of the things that they were seeing from the place to see and dancing, and and you've just changed it into into this, and you can do that with any religion, and and therefore uh, a world to world translation is destroying one world to create the other. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I do. In yep, fact, I absolutely. I, I just read something, or we were looking at at, at something today that uh, uh, was was very similar to this uh, because that that's what they were saying in the, in the new literature and the new books. Uh, and it, 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 they, they've got a new, instead of the gospel topics essays, mm-hmm. they have what are called topic gospel topics where you go and you click and it tells you, you know, it's, it's supposed to give you the answers that have been previously unknown. And, and I was looking at the one for the geography of the book of Mormon. And it basically said, um, what is important is the words of Christ, not mm-hmm. where or how or when it happened. That's exactly what this is. They're saying it's this worldview is all that matters. The old worldview doesn't matter. Only the new worldview that we've presented to you is what matters. And as long as you feel good about the new worldview, you don't need to worry about the old world or where it came from. Landon and Rebecca, that's exactly what they're saying. And that is fraud that is a lie and i'm going to show you why that is unforgivable get off the stage how dare you you cannot do that so all right world to world if the first world is secondary orality 
you are not going to be able to produce the text of the Book of Mormon. If it's secondary reality, it's a literal translation, you're not going to get the text of the Book of Mormon. If it's a world-to-world translation, you've just distorted one or both worlds beyond recognition, right? And that's why you say it's an act of violence. That's why I say it's an act of violence. Yeah, I wondered about that always. You've used that in every episode, and I thought I understood it, but now I really do. Thank you for explaining that. It really is an act of violence. Well, uh, I don't think Brand Gardner understands my argument. That's my argument. Right. Okay. What that tells me is as I read the Book of Mormon text, the text itself demands that the source text must come from a fully literate society if the translation has any bearing on reality. The source text must cite the law of Moses because we just read by Nephi, that's what they're living. We talk of Christ, we preach of Christ, we live this damn law, even though we know that Christ is coming and we won't have to live it, but we live it to keep the commandments. So we live this written law and we write all of our preachings down in prophecies and records and histories, tons of Isaiah. The source text has to be a fully literate society, in which case the translation is exactly what Joseph Smith said. It's a word. To, he read the words off the stone. It's a word for word translation from one literate society to another. It's really simple. The problem, of course, is there is no literate society in pre-Columbian America. Or not that kind of literacy in 600 BCE Jerusalem. So the whole thing is anachronistic. The whole thing, from the first verse to the last verse, it doesn't belong there in history. You follow what I'm saying between tight and loose translation, right? Any questions? Yeah, I've, I've got one. I, I guess this maybe re requires some speculation on your part, but these BYU professors who are who are writing about this and making the apologetics for this, who claim to be Egyptologists, claim to be uh, anthropologists, et cetera. They have to know this. They, they can't possibly be looking at this and thinking that that worldview or that these translations actually came from, from something ancient in, in Mesoamerica. Can they? Uh oh, you're making him laugh, Landon. <laughs> you're making him giggle. <laughs> now, look, I am presenting anthropology. Actually, it's anthropology 401, right? It's not 101 or 201. It's a little advanced, but it's, it's, I, I'm not coming up with anything earth shattering or fringe. This is, mm -hmm. this is the world. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I don't know what they know. All I know is I sit down and I read the Book of Mormon and, well, look, it took me till I sat down and read it with orality and liter literacy in mind for me to be able to articulate this. For me to sit down and say, oh, God, what was I thinking? Um, so I think maybe a lot of them don't know this. However, I do have to say you know, when you start getting into your upper tier apologists, I, I think they should know this. Uh, but we're going to get into actually. We're going to get into how I think they interpret the text. In any case, 
Here we have consequences of epistemologies. And here are the arguments. One argument I constantly hear is mm -hmm. if there were only a small number of literate Nephite scribes running the society, right? There's only a small number. So you don't expect to find all these texts, right? Because it was just a small number. Well, if less than, you know, if only a few percent, if it's a small number, that means your society is a secondary oral society. Almost everyone is oral. And if you're, if it's a small number, then they could not produce the Book of Mormon text because they're thinking in a different epistemological frame. You can't get around that. So all, all, all these arguments is it's only a tiny number of priests who actually run the society. And that's why we're not finding text. If that is true, then that small number of priests would be operating within an oral paradigm. And we should be reading about baboon penises and not about redemption and grace and the remission of sin and the father and the son. And we write down the law of Moses. Okay. If it's a small number of priests, they have just argued themselves out of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Follow? Yeah, thank you for that explanation, because I asked that earlier. I do hear that a lot, like you do too, that it was a small number of people, but you're absolutely right. And and one thing that I, I was thinking about as, we, as we've talked about this is, they always say, oh, it's the Nephite, the Nephites are the, have the priests that write in a small number. But the Lamanites came from Laman and Lemuel, who came from the same family, who had the same knowledge, to, who could also write, uh, supposedly. Why is only the Nephites, they, you know, the argument that we keep hearing is only the Nephites could write, the Lamanites couldn't. But the Lamanites came from the very same culture with the very same knowledge that Nephi came from. Again, Messiah chapter 24, the priests of Noah set up a teacher in all the Lamanite cities and teach them the writing system of the Nephites. So the Lamanites are using the same writing system. That writing system must come from a fully literate society. Therefore, it's a Semitic alphabetic script, and we should be finding tens of thousands of examples of it. You don't get to get around that. You don't get to say it's just a small number. If it's just a small number, then uh, you're dealing in an oral society. They're not going to produce the Book of Mormon text. Here's the, the other thing I keep hearing. Even if all the Nephite scribes were killed, oh, they were all killed and all the writing was destroyed. Landon, you just said the Lamanites were also using the writing system. Exactly. The same writing system. So yeah, that doesn't fix your problem because the writing system is both Nephites and Lamanites. If the society were fully literate, as the text tells us they were, if they were deeply Judeo-Christian, as the text tells us they were, then the products and consequences of this literacy and religion would be imprinted everywhere in the cultural landscape, as the text tells us it was. However, it is not so as history tells us. You know, and, and so, you know, you mentioned Neil Rapoli, who showed all these plates from all around the world, almost all of them outside of the time frame that he needs it to be, <laughs> from Korea and from India. And, 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 um, as he was doing that, I was saying, you know what? That's exactly what you need to be finding in the Americas. Mm -hmm. If the Nephites were there, you should be finding those bronze tablets or the Tumbaga tablets on the temple wall listing the law of Moses. That's what they would produce. And if 99% of it were destroyed, you're still going to have thousands, tens of thousands of remnants. Because that's what history gives us.
We should be finding metal plates all over the all over the place. Yeah. The argument it's a small group of priests doesn't work because that uh, takes you out of the epistemological model of literacy. The argument that it was all destroyed doesn't work because we know the Lamanites, according to the text, we're using it. But a fully literate society is going to leave a massive thumbprint in the record. One thing I noticed uh, during those arguments was they wanted to import stuff from outside in, but nothing from Nephite went out. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, Tumbunga, uh, you know, it. they kept saying, yes, it was in Peru. It was in Southern, South America. Tumbaga plates is sheer fantasy. Yes, yes. It is it's sheer fabrication. It, you would be better arguing for when Guardia Leviosa, a freaking magic wand of Harry Potter, then you would be for arguing Tobaga plates. And then and then to say there could have been three to six hundred Tobaga plates in the plate stack, as Grover says, is just sheer fantasy. And look, you just can't argue with it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I guess my point was that Tumbaga is coming into the Nephites. They're 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 learning how to use Tumbaga, yet writing doesn't go out to the Lamanites. Uh, and and what we learn is they're bringing brass plates. They're bringing plates. They're they're goldsmiths. They're metallurgists. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't the Tabunga be found in Mesoamerica going out uh, from these experts? Absolutely. Rather than Absolutely. from South America coming right. in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the first off, we don't get metallurgy in Mesoamerica until the 8th century. We don't get it in North America at all until a colonial contact. So the Heartland model doesn't help us. The Mesoamerica model doesn't help us. And to say that uh, the, to, they wrote records on Tobaga. Oh, look, we found thin Tobaga that's engraved. It's just, it's, uh, I, I, sorry, you, uh, no, no. Uh, and you're right. It needs to be going out. The, the society described in the Book of Mormon is, is full of commerce and trade and writing backs, all of it. And it tells us this, Helaman chapter three, it tells us they have records of every kind of thing, of temple building, shipbuilding, commerce, trade, right, wars, everything, right? And that should be going out. And it was, it tells us that the Lamanites are using the same system. And yet we find zero. I'm sorry, that's a tell. It's an obvious tell. It's not historical, period. Okay? Well, this is a real problem. Because this is the second part of uh, tonight's presentation, right? The, the, brother, the standard of proof for the Book of Mormon is a tight translation from a literate society. We just proved that didn't exist. Right? and in the Book of Mormon's literal historicity. Now, here is a trick that the church does, and I am just going to point it out uh, because it is profoundly dishonest. And I think most of them don't even know they're doing it because they've been trained with the freaking crayon that they created uh, to give everyone to teach them the religion but that crayon isn't there to teach truth. 
It's there to teach people to color within the lines. It's there to teach obedience. And, and very few people actually think this through. It's, it's mind boggling. All right. So the Book of Mormon is the primary origin story of Mormonism. Actually, a lot of Mormons don't know that. The first vision account is the second and latter origin story. You guys know this. Yes. When does the first vision account get written down? 1832 is the first one. 1832. When do we first hear about the Book of Mormon? 1827. 1827. The origin story of Mormonism begins with the Golden Bible. And that is what brings Joseph Smith out of obscurity. He is translating the plates according to the meta narrative. And so the origin story of the church resides in an angelic visitation holding gold plates. Okay. It's not the first vision. The first vision comes about in 1832 and then is backdated. It is backdated into the meta narrative and, uh, that itself is deeply problematic. Well, listen, this origin story of a the angel Moroni and the gold plates has consequences. So I just thought we'd read a couple paragraphs out of Joseph Smith history published in the Pearl of Great Price as Joseph Smith is describing what happened with the angel Moroni. This is Joseph Smith. Okay. It's not me, you, any critics. Here's the, here's the meta narrative. Here's the origin story of Mormonism. Uh, let's see, Rebecca, can you read that? Certainly, if I'm not too triggered. Here we go. <laughs> While I was thus in the act of calling upon God, I discovered a light appearing in my room, which continued to increase until the room was lighter than at noonday, when immediately a personage appeared at my bedside, standing in the air, for his feet did not touch the floor. He called me by name and said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me, and that his name was Moroni, or Nephi but here Moroni, that God had a work for me to do and that my name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds and tongues, or that it should be both good and evil spoken of among all people. Right. Landon, a few more verses. He said there was a book deposited written upon gold plates, giving an account of the former inhabitants of this continent and the source from whence they sprang. He also said that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in it as delivered by the Savior to the ancient inhabitants. Also that there were two stones in silver bows, and these stones fastened to a breastplate constituted what is called the Urim and Thummim, deposited with the plates. And the possession and use of these stones were what constituted seers in ancient or former times, and that God had prepared them for the purpose of translating the book. And I'll read this last one. After telling me these things, he commenced quoting prophecies of the Old Testament. This is a Nephite guy, by the way. Why, why isn't he quoting a Nephite scripture? Oh, wait, Nephite scripture is the Old Testament. He first quoted part of the chapter of Malachi, and he quoted also the fourth or last chapter of the same prophecy. And again, he quoted the fifth verse. Thus, behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. All right. Look, for the Mormon prophets, the standard of proof for the Book of Mormon lies solely in its historicity. Why do I say that? If there is no Moroni 
holding gold plate. So if there's a Moroni, what's it tell us? He was an ancient prophet. He was an ancient prophet that belonged to a Nephite civilization. He has a text. The text tells us about that civilization. Uh, so there's a thousand year history of this people who are Judeo-Christian, who uh, look forward to Christ. They preach of Christ. They prophesy of Christ and they write according to their prophecies generation after generation. That is the origin story of Mormonism. However, that is required because after Moroni and the text comes Peter, James, and John, and John the Baptist, according to the meta narrative. There's no Moroni, there is no Peter, James, and John, which means there are no priesthood keys, which means these men have nothing. Moroni has to exist because if he doesn't, then Joseph Smith lied about him. Then he lied about everything else. So Moroni has to exist so that Peter, James, and John are there so that the brethren have their priesthood keys so that they can demand your 10%, give you interviews, rummage through your life, and tell you they are the Lord's anointed. Okay? The origin story cannot be done away with, and it has to be historical has to be an actual Moroni with actual gold plates, with an actual thousand-year history. If that's if that does not exist, then the whole thing falls apart. It's pretty simple, right? Well, turns out, you know, this is Lewis Midgley, uh, 2001. He writes, there is no middle ground on the question of whether the Book of Mormon is an authentic ancient text. There is nothing in the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's account of it coming forth that suggests that it should be read as anything other than historical fact. He is right. The Book of Mormon has to be historic fact. If it's not historic fact, there are no priesthood keys. Understand? Pretty simple. Perfectly. And and it goes even further than that. The Old Testament has to also be yeah. literal history because without adam and even a fall there's no need for an atonement there's no need for a savior and therefore there would be no jesus christ uh so uh, i understand and, and i'm I think sticking he, strictly with the mormon narrative yes but i believe that the book of mormon references that i think it's second nephi chapter two maybe yeah. nine where it says without this you couldn't have that um and it's it's the same way with the book of mormon it's Without Moroni, you can't have a, a restoration. Yep, House of Cards. Yes. Well, as I go through go through the sources, we, we know the Book of Mormon must be historical. And so what kind of history is it? We just spent an hour and a half talking about it. It's got to be a fully literate society producing that history. It can't be a second, it can't be any society that actually existed. And this tells us that it's not historical. <laughs> However, uh, since the 19, at least the 1980s, there have been apostles in the Mormon church who have been giving a different line of thinking. And I wanted to track that a little bit. So if you can do it without getting triggered, can you read Boyd K. Packer? 
because I get triggered every time I read Boyd K. Packer. Um, I'm just not going to use the voice, but yes, I can do it. No, I think this is great that you're doing this because these are all out there and you're putting them together. I love it. Um, except for the Bible, the Book of Mormon is different from any book you have read. It is not a novel. It is not fiction. The Book of Mormon is not biographical, for not one character is, character is fully drawn, nor, in a strict sense, is it a history. The Book of Mormon is a book of scripture. It is another testament of Jesus Christ. It is written in biblical language, the language of the prophets. And that's Boyd K. Packer in 1986. Yeah. All right. So he tells us. Look, it's not fiction, but it's not biography, and it's not history. <laughs> what the hell is it then? It's scripture written yeah. in biblical language because that's how God speaks. <laughs> Which biblical language meaning, uh, you know, 1400, uh, 1500 yeah. Kings English. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, post yeah, post Reformation yeah. Uh, English. Oh, my God. All right. Uh, Landon, you want to read L. Tom Perry? How often we read the record primarily as a history of a fallen people, failing to remember that it was compiled by inspired prophets for the purpose of helping us come unto Christ. The major writers of the Book of Mormon did not intend it to be a history book at all. In fact, Jacob said that his brother Nephi commanded him that he should not touch, save it were lightly, concerning the history of this people. Okay, that's 2005. All right, I actually just pulled these two out of several that I could have pulled because there's several references by the apostles in the Mormon church saying the Book of Mormon is not a history book. It's a book of scripture. Now notice Elton Perry says, it's not a history book. And to prove that, I'm going to quote Jacob from within the book that says <laughs> we are not focusing on the history of the book, right? Which means it has to be a history book. Right. If he's citing, if he's citing Jacob, that means Jacob must have existed in order That's to right. have told us. Correct. It's not That's a history right. book. Oh, that makes your mind spin. All right. Really think about that. But here's what they're doing. There are two ways to read the Book of Mormon, and they have separated them. But as they separate them, they justify their authority from the wrong way so look you can read the book of mormon for its literary quality it has this is on the right it's scripture it's testaments filled with archetypes filled with stories that provide meaning feeling values and principles you can read the Book of Mormon and you can read about grace and redemption and repentance and sacrifice and giving to the poor and stories that demonstrate courage. That is the ontological sense of the Book of Mormon. And when Moroni makes his promise, read these things, see if they are not true. If you read the Book of Mormon based on its ontological values, its archetypes, and values, then you can get a spiritual witness of it because people have gotten a spiritual witness. I got a spiritual witness of it as I uh, read the book, read Moroni's promise, because the book is filled with New Testament values, New Testament archetypes. That is one way to read the Book of Mormon. However, 
is very important. When you sit in the bishops and stake president's office and they look at you and they ask you if you pay a full tithe, if you uh, have gone to your tithing uh, interview, if <laughs> you pay your 10%, you sit at the temple recommend interview and they ask you, do you support the brethren unerringly? Do you, do they ask you how how often have you masturbated? How right? All the questions they ask you in every interview. Why are they doing that? What authority do they have to be asking you any of that, or to be asking you for any of your money? Where's that authority come from? Ah, that comes from the temple keys they say they have because they're the lord's anointed and that must come from a historical book of mormon that those keys derive from an actual set of gold plates from an actual angel moroni who introduced john the baptist ministering angels priesthood keys their authority to give that temple recommend interview relies entirely on the historicity of the book of mormon it has to be real. No, so all uh, the quotes that we just read by Elton Perry and Boyd K. Packer, they're talking about the Book of Mormon in its ontological sense. It's not history. It's not biography. Sure enough, it's not. But uh, it is scripture and it brings us unto Christ. And therefore, pay us your 10% and let me ask you about your personal. Oh, no, no, no. That's not how it works. That's the way they have grifted it. But in order for them to give that Temple Recommend interview, it has to be historical. The standard of proof for the Book of Mormon is in its literal historicity. Okay? Well, they've... What they do is say, if you can feel good about the message of the text, we therefore get to give you our interviews and ask for your 10%. No, incorrect. <laughs> the, the authority you get comes from the literal historicity of the Book of Mormon. Well, here is the further grift. I'm sorry, but I have got to quote this wonderful talk by Dallin H. Oaks, given in 2001. I'm going to quote several paragraphs where he talks literally about the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Again, standard of proof for the Book of Mormon is the standard they set. I didn't set it. You didn't set it. When they say they're the Lord's anointed, they have to prove a historical Book of Mormon. Not an ontological Book of Mormon. A historical Book of Mormon. Okay. Well, here's how Dallin H. Oaks gets around it because there's all kinds of problems with the historicity of the Book of Mormon. In fact, through these episodes, I've shown the Book of Mormon is not historical. Period. It cannot exist. It was not produced in 600 BCE Jerusalem. It was not produced in pre-Columbian America by any indigenous culture, nor could it be produced. It is all anachronistic. That thought world could not produce the text of the Book of Mormon, not ever. So it's not historical, period. You don't get to get around that. Well, this is how they get around it. Landon, you want to... So this is a speech he gave, Dallin H. Oaks, 
on the historicity of the Book of Mormon. This is his opening line. Would you like to read that? I'd love to. The issue of the historicity of the Book of Mormon highlights the difference between those who rely solely on scholarship and those who rely on revelation, faith, and scholarship. Those who rely solely on scholarship reject revelation and focus on a limited number of issues, but they can neither prove nor disprove the authenticity of the Book of Mormon through their secular evidence and methods. On the other hand, those who rely on a combination of revelation, faith, and scholarship can see and understand all of the complex issues of the Book of Mormon record, and it is only through that combination that the question of the historicity of the Book of Mormon can be answered. Wow, yeah, that... Uh... <laughs> can, I just, just... can I just note the year of the speech, 2001? I mean, we're talking internet, right? For about the decade prior to that, it's all coming to a head right now. Even the words that they use, number of issues, the numbers of issues were coming out at this point and they're fast and furious. So, of course, they're addressing it in this way. This is what's happening right now. The Internet, like the printing press, um, is just making mincemeat of it. So they have to address it. 2000 yep that's right this is mm -hmm. the age of the internet and it's just uh -huh. entering the just church starting. culture at this point mm -hmm. all right and what does oaks tell us he says the only way to determine the historicity of the book of mormon is through revelation faith and scholarship but where the scholarship contradicts the revelation and faith we are to go with the revelation and faith what revelation is he talking about if I have a revelation that contradicts his revelation, is my revelation revelation? <laughs> Got to get it in line. It no. can be personal revelation, no, but they it has to align. They have explicitly said <laughs> that revelation from the Lord will follow their view. Don H. Oaks opens his talk by saying the only people who can tell you if the Book of Mormon is historical is them. That's it. They're the only ones who understand the complex issues and they have the revelation faith necessary to determine the complex issues. He is saying right up front, I'm the only one who gets to say. Now, that is unforgivable. It's disgusting. It's wrong. It's a lie. However, he's going to double down on it. So let's just keep reading. Um, Rebecca, do you, <laughs> can I do it? Yes, I can for the greater good. Here we go. For the greater um, good. <laughs> some who turn themselves believing Latter-day Saints are advocating that Latter-day Saints should abandon claims that the Book of Mormon is a historical record of the ancient peoples of the Americas. They are promoting the feasibility of reading and using the Book of Mormon as nothing more than a pious fiction with some valuable contents. These practitioners of so-called higher criticism, criticism raise the question of whether the Book of Mormon, which our prophets have put forward as the pre preeminent scripture of this dispensation, is fact or fable, history or just a story. The historicity, historical authenticity of the Book of Mormon is an issue so fundamental that it rests first upon faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the first principle in this, as in all other matters. Sorry, that line surprised me. <laughs> oh 
He's saying that it the, its historical authenticity is so fundamental and critical that it can only be determined by faith in the Lord Jesus yeah. Christ. What does that mean? It means, again, only he gets to say if it's historical or not. That is what this means. If you determine it's not historical, it's because you don't have faith in Jesus Correct. Exactly. There Correct. it is. Correct. Well, it's your fault if it's not historical, because you don't have enough faith to make it historical. It's what he's saying. Next, next block. I'll read it. In contrast, if the Book of Mormon only purports, oh, he just gave a part of his talk where he explains that the Book of Mormon doesn't uh, talk about the entire history of all the people in the Americas, but only a small group. Now, you have to. Right. When I grew up in the church, the Lamanites, all all the indigenous people of the Americas were descendant from the Lamanites. Not Isn't that what you were taught? The Hawaiian Islands, Tonga. That's right. right. Yep. <laughs> right. They were all descended from the Lamanites. And who told us that? It was the church. It was printed in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon said that uh, the people were descendant of the Lamanites and they changed that. To say, uh, you know, the the some of the people among. were descended from yeah, among. among the land. Among, but, but all growing up, they said it was universal. Well, now Don H. Oaks gaslights the people and says, "Oh, by the way, the Book of Mormon only purports to be an account of a few people who inhabited a portion of the Americas during a few millennia in the past." The burden of argument changes drastically. It is no longer a question of all versus none. It is a question of some versus none. In other words, in the circumstance I describe, the opponents of historicity must prove that the Book of Mormon has no historical validity for any peoples who lived in the Americas in a particular time frame, a notoriously difficult exercise. We just did that. Yeah. We just did that. One does not prevail on that proposition by proving that a particular Eskimo culture represent migrations from Asia. The opponents of the historicity of the Book of Mormon must prove that the people whose religious life it records did not live anywhere in the Americas. We just did that. He thinks he can get away from this by saying it's only a small group and that can be lost in history and therefore, we'll never know. Therefore, we must have faith. Therefore, you must believe what I say, because only I can tell you the truth of its historicity. That is what he just said. And, and even more maddening to me here is he first puts it on everyone else has to prove it, not the person making the claim. Mm -hmm. And he says, you have to prove it, that they didn't live anywhere in the Americas you're you're claiming it 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 has historicity but you can't tell us where to look <laughs> you can't tell us what we're looking for you can't you can't even point you can't even decide whether it's in the heartland of america whether it's in meso america you you can't even place it anywhere yet it's our job to prove they didn't live where you're saying right. that they lived which you can't even say where they lived <laughs> that's just mind boggling this to me this is unforgivable if Don H. Oaks was selling pizzas or tennis shoes, I would roll my eyes and say, oh, well, marketing. 
but he is entering into the existential ontological lives of every Mormon member through bishops and stake presidents, extracting tens of thousands of hours, your sense of self, your sense, your, your trajectory of life, you, let alone your tithing. The standard of proof is in its literal historicity and extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And this is what he gives us. I, uh, to me, this is repugnant. It's repugnant to human dignity and conscience. How dare he? Oh, wait, he's not done. We got one more paragraph to read. Who's going to read it? I can read it. Let's see. Um, honest investigators will conclude that there are so many evidences that the Book of Mormon is an ancient text that they cannot confidently resolve the question um, against the authenticity, despite some unanswered questions that seem to support the negative determination. In that circumstance, the proponents of the Book of Mormon can settle for a draw or a hung jury on the question of historicity <laughs> and take a continuance. Do not laugh, I'm reading, uh, until the controversy can be retried in another forum. In fact, it is our position that secular evidence can neither prove nor disprove the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Its authenticity depends, as it says, on a witness of the Holy Spirit. Our side will settle for a draw. But those who deny the historicity of the Book of Mormon cannot settle for a draw. They must try to disprove its historicity, or they seem to feel a necessity to do this. And in this, they are unsuccessful because even the secular evidence viewed in its entirety, is too complex for that. Wow. <laughs> I have a couple observations. Maybe you have something you would like to share, but may I share mine? Please do. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> First off, this guy is a prophet, seer, and revelator. He holds the priesthood keys of eternity, of principalities, dominions, kingdoms, eternal lives. He speaks for God. He's Lord's representative on earth. And he says, when it comes to the history, historicity of the Book of Mormon, thus saith the Lord, we'll call it a draw. <laughs> oh, and. I hear this. I hear this argument where people say, we don't know, you don't know, I don't know, but do you really want to err on that side? Isn't it best to just make sure, you know, I hear that from people who are confused. They're experiencing cognitive dissonance, but they just feel like we better err on the side because the consequences, if it does turn out to be real, are, you know, unfathomable. Kind of. I, I, I love this term, honest investigators. Again, he puts it on you if you investigate and find that it's not historical it's because you're not being honest with yourself yeah. it's because because there are so many evidences of which we keep saying what are they please you know please please show us some historical evidence of this book you created an entire organization farms and spent years and tens of thousands of not hundreds of thousands of dollars sending archaeologists to find this historicity and you came back with a big goose egg of nothing and disbanded the organization. You even say right here, there's some unanswered questions that seem to support the negative determination, but the honest investigator will believe what we tell them and will know it through the Holy Spirit, not through any secular evidence. Well, what we are looking for is not a spiritual realm. We are looking for a secular realm. We're looking for 
something that actually existed. We should find it. Yeah. Well, I at least we can see his, the methodology. And it is a one-way street, right? Actually, no evidence is needed. Don H. Oaks doesn't want any evidence. He just wants obedience. That's what this talk is, period. All right, here's the last of it. I'll read it. Some Latter-day Saint critics who deny the historicity of the Book of Mormon seek to make their proposed approach persuasive to Latter-day Saints by praising or affirming the value of some of the content of the book. Those who take this approach assume the significant burden of explaining how they can praise the contents of a book they have dismissed as a fable. The New Style critics have the same problem with the Book of Mormon. For example, we might affirm the value of the teachings recorded in the name of a man named Moroni, but if these teachings have value, how do we explain these statements also attributed to this man? And if there be faults in the record, they be the faults of man. But behold, we know no fault. Nevertheless, God knoweth all things. Therefore, he that condemneth, let him be aware, lest he shall be in danger of hellfire, end quote. There's something strange about accepting the moral or religious content of a book while rejecting the truthfulness of its author's declarations, predictions, and statements. Don Oaks has just said, if there is good ontological moral content in the book, therefore it must be historical because the writers in the book said so. That's his proof of historicity. Do you get it? It is a... The man is a Mobius strip of conniving mediocrity stuffed into the tongue of a carpetbagger. That is what this is. He is selling a grift. First off, sorry, Dallin H. Oaks. We just disproved the historicity of the Book of Mormon on Mormonish podcast. Period. The epistemological is out of time and place. The epistemological model is out of time and place. No society could have produced the, te the, the text of the Book of Mormon is post-Reformation Christianity from a fully literate society that didn't exist anywhere. Sorry, didn't exist. Therefore, it's not historical. The only good thing about the Book of Mormon is some of its values and mm -hmm. archetypes that are literary values and archetypes, but they too are not historical. He see, he says literally, if, if there's truth in the Book of Mormon, if there's moral truth in the Book of Mormon, it has to be historical. The man has not read a book. I was the just going to say that. Shakespeare. The man has not read Dante or Sophocles or Augustine. The or man, Harry Potter. Or Harry Potter. <laughs> Or Tolkien. Yep. Who, what Lewis. the hell? Yeah. This is so unbelievable. And yet, this is it. This is the argument. So here we have, again, he is equating the moral truth with the historic truth. He tells us only he can determine the historic truth because you need revelation and faith in Christ. Therefore, follow me. 
And therefore, I get to give you the temple recommend and take your tithing. Oh, my God. We've just established. In order to give that temple recommend, you have to have priesthood keys, which means those gold plates have to be those gold plates have to exist. And what's written on those gold plates have to come from a fully literate society, which did not exist. There has to be a Moroni because that means there could be a Peter, James, and John, which means there could be modern prophets and apostles, which could mean there is modern day revelation and the Mormon church is the only, this is the pyramid scheme right here. It starts with a historical gold plates and an angel Moroni out of which all it flows. Right. But again, in or you can test the historicity of those gold plates. Yeah, he's that first part, the ontology that's good for TBMs. However, if you're going to hold your temple recommend interview, you got to show the rest. There's got to be historical text, monotheistic, Semitic text, art, and rituals, all the things that those things create social, monetary, artistic, political structures, and forms, which is backed by archaeology, anthropology, linguistics, DNA. And it turns out. There is zero of that. Zero. So this does not work. And I am going to say, if a believer in the church wants to stay with the, the moral truth of the Book of Mormon, I get that. I'm okay with that. But the apologist, they have to show up with monotheistic and Semitic text art and rituals. They have zero. The prophets, seers, and revelators have to show up with everything. That's the standard they set. When they say they're the Lord's anointed, they have to prove that. They don't get to say, uh, only we have the faith and revelation. Follow us. I'm sorry. You are going to demand obedience from millions of people based off a historical claim of an angel and gold plates, you got to prove it. That's the standard. You, That's the extraordinary evidence for your extraordinary claim. You have to show up with everything. They have shown, we just read what they show up with, a big gaslighting nothing. And uh, I, 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 well, anyway, I've one last uh, argument to make for tonight's episode. And that is this. If you take a truth claim and you utterly separate it from historical reality, then your truth claim can be believed simply by force of authoritarian culture. If you're told to believe it, that's all that is required. If you're going to separate all historical reality. They can't show us historical texts. They can't show us art. They can't show us rituals, archaeology, anthropology, linguistics, DNA. If you're going to separate that out from your truth claims, you're, you're looking for a people that exist but don't exist, that left traces but didn't leave, leave traces, that people believe in but you can't prove. Um, what what are you looking for? And wh what is it literally 
you can believe in anything as long as the group believes it. If it's unassociated with historical reality, and that is where the church is at, you might as well believe in Bigfoot creating the gold plates, right? Because it turns out there's more evidence for Bigfoot than there is for the Nephites. In fact, I'm going to suggest a new Book of Mormon geography model, right? We have the Heartland model, the Mesoamerican model. I'm going to suggest the Sasquatchistan model, right? Well, I like and that. So here's the deal. The Heartland model has some problems. North America doesn't have any writing, no urbanization, no agriculture, uh, no metallurgy, and no proof. That's a problem for the Heartland model. The Mesoamerican model has writing, has urbanization, has agriculture, doesn't have metallurgy in the right time frame. However, it has no archaeology, no DNA, no linguistics, and no anthropology. That's a problem. Well, if we're going to disassociate the truth claims of the Book of Mormon from all of that, then you can believe in anything. So why not believe that the Nephites were Bigfoots? Right? And we actually have pretty good evidence for it. We have the Zapruder film, right? The Bigfoot walking across. Yeah. That was Moroni burying the plates. We have plaster casts. I bet, Landon, you have a plaster cast in your garage. Everyone has a plaster cast. <laughs> I grew I'm up with one. Butt. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. So, yeah, yeah, right. I we have mass sightings. Huh? Yep. Millions of people believe in Bigfoot. Right? Millions. There's personal testimonies. Look, they, they keep saying we can prove the Book of Mormon through textual complexity. Oh, the lower complexity of Bigfoot is much more complex than the textual complexity of the Book of Mormon, right? You find you find Bigfoot uh, lore in every culture in North America, Central America, and South America. <laughs> and yet, can you find evidence of Bigfoot? Well, not really. <laughs> I mean, despite all the plastic casts. That's because they live in magical caves. So they exist and they don't exist, just like the Nephites, right? So, so if you're going to detach your belief system from historical realities, then you can end up believing in anything that you can convince people of. And that is what uh, Don H. Oaks just spent an entire speech doing. He said, we, the only way to determine the historicity of the Book of Mormon is through revelation and faith that I tell you. Well, okay then that's where we're at i i personally i think bigfoot as a nephite solves a lot of problems right because uh when moroni appears to joseph right he tells him about this this breastplate in the 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 two silver bowls and we have one uh we have one uh uh, observer who said that Joseph Smith wore the spectacles that he translated the Book of Mormon, but they were so big he can only look through one eyeglass at a time. Do you remember this? Yeah. 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 Well, so what does that mean? Well, if, if the Nephites were Bigfoots, then that's exactly what you would expect, right? Which means the Jaredites were Bigfoots because that's where the Urim and Thummim comes from. And here, here they are crossing the sea. And here's Nephi, <laughs> uh, who's come to the promised land. And uh, here's Captain Moroni with his title of liberty. And like here's that. Jesus preaching to the Nephites at Yetiopolis, the capital city. And here's Mormon preparing the last of the records. 
oh, hey, next month there's a, a giant blockbuster coming out in movie theaters called One Big Hairy Promise. And it's about the last Nephi who falls in love with a Lamanite woman. Oh, dear. <laughs> and, and Here we go. Married, and they get married. And uh, it has a surprise ending. It ends in divorce court. She complains no. about the toenail clippings in the magical cave. And <laughs> we learned the collapse of the Nephite civilization was over a pedicure. <sighs> I did all that just to show this uh, logo yeah. of Sasquatchistan, which I'm going to put on T-shirts and mugs and, you know, maybe make some Mormonish some some uh, some money. That's right. Look, if you value the Book of Mormon through its archetypes, its meaning, its moral, its feelings, its values, its principles, that's belief. I accept that. But if you disassociate the Book of Mormon from its historical claims, which is what they have done, then the next time you walk into a bishops or stake president interview, please know that they sit there, not based off the beliefs and values of the Book of Mormon, but based off the historical claims of the Book of Mormon. Those plates have to be there. The angel has to be there for them to have those priesthood keys to give you that interview. So you have to adjudicate the brethren through the historicity of the Book of Mormon, not how the Book of Mormon teaches truth, period. Otherwise, you might as well be interviewed by a Bigfoot. And it's the same thing because they have the same priesthood keys. That's the truth. And at some point, the truth has to matter. All right. Any thoughts? You're blowing us away again, John. Absolutely. But no, you're so correct. I think about um, the talk that was given last summer, um, Kyle McKay saying, finding answers is not the solution. Don't look for answers. Don't look any farther. It's all about your feelings and belief. They are separating it because it's the only thing that makes sense to preserve. You cannot find the answer in historicity. It has to be feeling. It has to be belief. It's the only thing that works. And, and again, looking through these uh, these uh, new gospel topics, essays and everything, they always add the thing, yeah. trusted sources. Only yeah. look at trusted sources. Trusted sources means sources we've produced and okayed and put in Deseret Book. Don't look at outside sources. Don't look at external history to determine this. Look only to what we tell you and what comes out of BYU or Scripture Central or other trusted sources. Yeah, and I would add to that because we have been studying this today. I don't know if you heard, John, but they're getting rid of the gospel topics, not the essay, but another section um, on the church website. And they replaced it with topics and questions where they have 60, 40, I don't know how many, but a lot of bullet points of different topics, alphabetical order, um, bullet points that you can go in. If somebody says something, I don't understand this, you can look it up. So there's a guideline on how to interpret the answers that they give you. And it says, introduction to seeking answers to your questions. So now they're going to tell you what you need to do to get the right answer. It's not scholarship. It's not research. First, you need to center your life on Christ. If you center your life on Christ, what you're going to hear is going to be the right answer to you. You have to be patient with yourself. You have to recognize revelation is a process. You have to consult only the reliable sources, and then you have to sort of work to understand the past. So to me, they're moving very much. This is a very timely episode we did with you. They are moving to the point where nothing can be proven. 
It's all you preparing yourself spiritually to feel and for belief. And that's it. That, that last one is important because they said you have to work to understand the past. Mm -hmm. That would mean you need to understand the historical surroundings of what happened uh, to, to something. And then they're going to tell you, well, that's just too complicated for you to, to get to that point. You're not a historian. There's no way you can get to that yourself. So you're going to have to listen to our historians. But you just laid it out and said, if we understand the culture, we understand the Book of Mormon could not have come from this culture. And you're doing exactly what they just said there, understanding the cultural. And when you do that, it, it shows that it's not historical. The brethren of the Mormon church do not hold truth as a value. They do not seek truth. They seek obedience. So the entire thing is a grift. Hey, if they're selling pizzas and tennis shoes, you know, have your little bullet points of your gospel topics, whatever. But you are saying you are the Lord's anointed. If you're going to make that claim, then you get to be held to a different standard than everyone else. And that standard is the absolute highest standard. There is no higher standard. Therefore, you must produce everything because that's the standard you just set for yourself because you just said you're the Lord's anointed. You have to produce the archaeology, anthropology, DNA, linguistic evidence for the Book of Mormon because that has to be real so that you have your priesthood keys. You have produced zero. Instead, you said, oh, you, you, you can't use scholarship. You got to use revelation and scholarship and revelation is what we tell you. Oh, and here's a list to help you decide what we tell you. Have faith in Christ. Okay. The, claim, the, the standard of proof is the historicity of the Book of Mormon, not the ontology of the Book of Mormon. They will never concede that point. And when it comes to the historicity, they will always retract to the unfalsifiable. Always. And they will put the burden of proof on you when it's them that has the burden of proof. You say you're the Lord's anointed. You have the burden of proof to show everything. And yet they've convinced millions of people that it's the other way around. I, I you know, it's, um, as I said, it's, I think it's a form of evil. So I, 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 it, it's, it's repugnant. So I, Look, I know a lot of TBMs, and, and they're fully divested in the system. And I understand that, and I respect that, because they do get values. They, they do get principles. They, they are given a, a context to live in a community. A lot of this is very good. And in fact, Mormonism is full of goodness, because they're giving Mormonism the goodness. It, it comes from the bottom up. From the top down, those men, those men who call themselves the Lord's anointed, they have to show up with proof, and they've shown up with nothing. So I, 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 I think it's unforgivable. We, we, anyway. we should probably call that the Tabunga standard uh, of proof. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, you do excellent work, John, and you just make it so clear and you help us understand and you help us kind of understand what we feel. And we so appreciate your passion because we all feel that we can't articulate it always like you do. And especially with everything, you have to back it up. So that's why we appreciate you so much. Landon, do you have any thoughts, final thoughts as we wrap up here? This has been a really excellent discussion. No, I appreciate it, John. And we look forward to the, uh, the, the, the rebuttal ones that we'll be doing here in the near future. Absolutely. We're hoping to engage with, with, you know, with the scholarship, with others, because I think a dialogue, it's a good thing. We're not, we're not shutting the door on that at all. Are we, John, you want to talk to everybody. I laid it on a little heavy tonight, but, um, this is the standard they've set. So, um, I'd be happy to talk to, I'd be happy to talk to anyone. Hey, you know, look, these, these guys seem very nice. I'd be mm -hmm. happy, uh, for a conversation. I have a different standard for the apologists than I do for the prophets. And so, you know, again, I have a very high standard for the prophets, seers, and revelators of Mormonism, Mormonism, because that's the standard they set. Yes. So, all right. Yep, that's exactly it. All right. I think we will wrap it up. And please, I bet you can't help but comment on this. Honestly, <laughs> I'm expecting the chat has gone crazy. And please let us know what you thought of tonight's episode. This is the fifth of a five-part series, and we will link all the ep other episodes that we've done with Dr. John Lundwall into the show notes. And it's not the end, because now that we finished this series, there are some other things that he has in mind. And I think he does want to address some of the specific programs that have come out addressing his scholarship. So we will definitely be seeing more. Um, so please like and subscribe. Don't forget to comment. If you would like to be notified when new episodes of Mormonish Podcast come out, you can hit that notification bell. And if you would like to support the channel financially, you can always help with that as so many do. And we appreciate you so much. There are links to PayPal and Venmo in the show notes. And I think we've covered everything and we will say good night for now from Landon and John. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next time on Mormonish Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.